Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us. Amen. Just this weekend, my family and I had the opportunity to visit the fort at Fort Yago State Park, about 50 miles northeast of here. And when you tell your kids that you are taking them to see a fort dating back from the late 1700s, especially when these kids have seen the dungeons in the Tower of London, and numerous battlements of English castles, plus any number of fantastical movie scenes of fortresses and battles on an impossibly grand scale, a certain set of expectations starts to build. Needless to say, it was something of a rude awakening to discover that Fort Yago is a small wooden structure set in a field with pickup trucks in the gravel parking lot and a small village of people in period costume hovering at the front door. Given that we are still newbies out in the wilds of Georgia, we were undeterred by this modest beginning and made our way up to the small structure, only to discover that there was something of a party going on on the inside. As we walked through the front door, we knew that something wasn't quite right when we noticed the Dunkin' Donuts boxes on the table. I knew they were famous for their coffee, but I hadn't known that George Washington himself had been a fan. Looking around the room, I noticed a number of other people present who, while they weren't in period costume, were all dressed more or less the same, in one form or other of army fatigue, and each of whom, I also noticed, was holding some sort of weapon. As a rather spaciously proportioned man, who sat in a rocking chair in the corner, started telling the kids how the house was haunted, while his counterpart, every few seconds, kept on asking after some unidentified Yankees. I chose not to say too much out loud, in case one of them decided that the Revolutionary War was not yet quite over. After a blood pressure raising 20 minutes of feigned fascination at the intricacies of late 1700s war enactments, we offered our thanks and ran for our lives. 18th century forts, Dunkin' Donuts, and resident ghosts. Sometimes the story you are seeing play out before you doesn't quite seem to fit. Of course, we can feel the same about our own life, can't we? Or our work, or our marriage, or where it is that life appears to have taken us. The story just doesn't seem right, not really what we think it should be. Lent is a gift for us, especially should we find ourselves in any way unsure of the story unfolding before us, because it offers us a reorientation, a placing of our life story into the grand story of salvation history. As it is, it is a story that is no stranger to loss and suffering, yet 
As former Dean of Grace Cathedral, Alan Jones says, it is also a story which reminds us that the worst word we might have to say about ourselves is not the last word. For the last word is life. Life risen out of the ashes of Lent. This journey always leads to the same glorious place of Jesus' resurrection and our own in Christ. Yet the invitation of Lent is not merely for us to doze our way through these 40 days, trusting that all will be well in the end. Lent is an invitation to make our own way into the wilderness. For the wilderness is our teacher, a spare place cleared of the usual trappings of self-delusion and easy contentment, a place we enter not at our peril, but in the hope of our transformation. And so my encouragement to you this holy season of Lent is to let the story sweep you up and to find yourself anew within it. If you began your Lenten journey this year with Ash Wednesday services here, or if you happen to notice the ash-smeared foreheads of your colleagues and neighbors this past week, it is possible that you had already entered the story where all of our stories begin. Earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. The complex cacophony of seven and a half billion human lives all sharing an origin in the dirt. Dirt made human. The one human made man and woman. The first family made a worldwide human family. This isn't science and was never intended to be a history of the beginning of our species. This is theology, the word about God that we tell one another to make sense not of our earthly origins, but of our heavenly one. You and I belong to the same source. As our beautiful children's choirs sing, all God's critters got a place in the choir, which is a true and a resplendently beautiful thing to proclaim. What's more, our one origin in God is a story we share that really matters because it is in that belief that we find our ultimate answer to bigotry in all its forms. When churches and politics say that some sexual orientations are welcome but not others, or when we draw lines along race or gender or economic status to divide one another, we say, as people of the story of God, that we are all of that one first story, each belonging to one another, believing that in God none of us is left out, that all of us belong each to the other. Should today be the day when your Lenten journey most comes into view, then today's origin story makes an almost equally mythic beginning with the proclamation that this threefold tale of the great Abrahamic faiths of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam has its start in this one beautifully elusive statement we heard read in Deuteronomy this morning. A wandering Aramean was my ancestor. 
the one who went down into Egypt and lived there as an alien, a place of hardship and suffering and of not belonging for 400 years. Some believe this Aramean to be Jacob, others Abraham. Yet the identity matters less than the point on offer. That as much as our ultimate origins share one beginning in one person, Adam, the story of our opening act as a people is not one of easy settlement or some grand vision of inclusion. Our common life's origin is as those who wandered along a desert way, not first into a land of promise, but first into a land where we were not welcome. In many ways, then, the people of the Abrahamic faiths have a story that inclines us to find common ground with the alien, with the wanderers of the earth, with those who cross borders in hope of a better life or simply in hope of having a life at all. For as much as Christianity became an establishment religion, the beginnings of our story place us quite differently. We make our start as the people of God, not in certainty with regards to our place in the world, but in an uncertain home. With more people displaced alive today in the world than there have ever been, at nearly 70 million, our work in this church among refugees and our voices that might be used to promote the needs of those displaced around the world matter not only because the need is so great, but because at the beginning of things, their story is also our story. Yet the arc of history's story of the plight of human suffering does not end in lament. The worst story we can tell about ourselves is not the last. Rather, it ends in resurrection, we strive for the dignity of every human being, not only because it is right to do so, but because we trust that this is how the story is meant to end, in risen and restored life. However, as Luke's gospel telling of Jesus' rendezvous with Satan reminds us, it is so easy for us to get the story wrong, isn't it? Ask for more than you need. Worship power that is not truly power. Expect God to rescue you from trouble. These are the untruths of the good news according to the devil told in the desert places of our lives. You may not believe in such mythic figures, but you don't really need to, to have the point come home. How many of us have seen the temptation on the horizon to enter into another story than the one we have been living, I wonder? Another relationship that might somehow bypass the brokenness of the one we can't seem to fix ourselves. How many have been sold into modern-day slavery, I wonder, by the lone shark's easy solution to crippling debt? How many teenagers make their way too early 
into an adult's world with the promise of relationships that won't sustain and behaviors they are not ready for as children become parents themselves. Yet there is hope. For the devil does not prevail with our Lord in the wilderness because he gets the story wrong. Jesus has not come for dominion or to somehow offer a living test of God's power or goodness. Jesus is the ark in the narrative where God becomes the story, set within, not beyond the scene unfolding, subject to the same hardship and striving that you and I are. That is the story of God's utter solidarity with us and with all people through which all of the story is to be told. And Lent is the passage of the journey that has the power to teach us again, should our lives be open to its lessons, that you and I are living legacies of God's story of hope and salvation, precisely because God gives God's self over to be in the mix with us, making the divine story our own and the human story God's. So, my dear saints of God, I pray that you might find yourself in this Lenten story, in this story of our origins, in this story of God drawing near to you right at the heart of your life. For it is not only a story to live by, but a story to live into, of hope set free from fear and scarcity, not because we were tempted to believe our trials might be passed over, but because we saw that there was no need in our lives or in our world for the demons to set the agenda for the present and future of human flourishing. Live into the story this Lent. Discover the power inherent in you to be a living legacy of the saving power of Christ's risen life, even in the wilderness places of this world and of your heart. This is but the opening act of an eternal promise. Remember the Lord your God, for that everlasting love has come to set you free.